we're wrapping up this Jude series. If you'd follow along, I'm going to start reading, pick up where we left off last week here in verse 17. Jude writes, But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. The children often want to know on the way home from the ball game that they played in or the way home from the piano recital or the ballet performance or wherever it might be, children often want to know on the way home, how'd I do? I remember in our own family, um, my grandmother on my mom's side, we called her Mama, and she had a classic approach. So she would lay it on thick. As soon as the performance was over, she would say, you were the best one of the whole group. Like, and she would just, just, just these accolades just come pouring out, these crazy amounts of praise. And then she would, she would solidify this kind of stern, more serious face, and she would say, now don't get prideful. Right, so she's laying it on thick with all this applause, and then she's saying, don't let your head get too big, and don't get prideful, right? There's a sense in which we have this deep impulse as Christians, as believers, and it's a childlike impulse, because what do we want to know? We want to know from the Father, how did I do? Right, what are the words that every Christian, the moment we cross the finish line of life, we ask the Father in a sense, How'd I do? We, every Christian for the last 2,000 years that dies in Christ wants to hear above anything else two words. Well done. You did well. Good and faithful servant. You did well. Look, up until now, Jude has not sounded like Momo. This has not been a super encouraging letter, right? He's talking a lot about fire and eternal destruction, these dark themes of final judgment that we've been wading through all the way up until now, right? We, so here we are as Christians. We want to persevere to the end, and we want assurance that we're going to persevere to the end. But Jude spends most of his time talking about people who didn't. He's saying, so let me tell you about a group of people. They didn't make it to the end. They died in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the end. They're in flames. This group of people, right? He's just going after one group after another who didn't make it to the end. And in a sense, it almost leaves the introspective believer saying, well, that's not hugely encouraging, is it? Because <laughs> what am I supposed to think about the assurance that I'm going to make it to the end when Jude, all you keep telling us is one kind of story. A lot of people don't make it to the end. And yet we come to the end of this letter and twice Jude drops two words in rapid succession that have lifted the spirits of believers for 2,000 years. And the words are these, but 
you. They didn't make it to the end. Verse 17, but you, dear friends, but you, it's the word agape toy, you, beloved, you, dear ones, you're not destined for judgment. You're going to persevere to the end. You're gonna make it all the way to the end and here's how you're gonna do it. That is what Jude does at the end of this letter after he's had all these haunting images of those who did not persevere. He says, not you, not so with you. You're gonna make it, I'm gonna tell you how. And so he stacks these these biblical exhortations about what does it look like for us to be tenacious in the faith all the way to the finish line. This passage calls us to, number one, an active faith. It calls us to an active faith. So for 16 verses, Jude has given us exactly nothing to do. There have been no imperative verbs, just descriptions of things that have happened, but no imperative verbs about you do this and you do that. There's been no practical handles or application points so far. Then we come to 17 and he starts rolling out all these practical applications. He gives five imperative verbs, five clear commands, here's what to do, and then these participle phrases that modify those verbs, and he's saying, here's how you're gonna do the things that I just told you to do. Here's the means by which you're going to do those things. And if you wanna underline these commands, the first one is found in verse 17, the word remember. That's the first imperative verb in Jude's letter. You see those words, you, but you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles. You wanna make it to the end, you gotta remember some things. You gotta remember that you were warned in advance about false teachers. You were, the, the, the apostles told you this was coming. Paul said, watch out, there are gonna be wolves in sheep's clothing and I need you to know, I need you to have, a, I need you to have an ability to sniff out error. And so the apostles' teaching was doing that. It was helping God's people to hold fast to the truth, to contend for the truth, to develop sound thinking, to be able to refute error. New Testament apostles were constantly beating that drum. Here's the the reality of it. We don't get that kind of deep biblical discernment by skating lightly over biblical texts. We get that kind of discernment that enables us to hold fast all the way to the end. We get that by diving deeply into the text of scripture, carefully studying, carefully interpreting God's word. Uh, A Christian leader had a live onstage interview with five high school students recently and I I caught this, this interview watched it on the internet, and he directed the first question to an African-American girl, she's maybe a junior in high school, and he asked this question, he said, if your friends could say one thing to shape the future of student ministry, and if student leaders were hearing what you're saying, what would your friends say to shape the future of student ministry? And here's what she said. She said, we would want them to know we don't want fluff. We wanna be deep in our faith. She said this, she said, we live in confusing times and we need truth. Don't give us something else and not give us the truth. Don't just give us good times, give us 
truth. Put meat on our bones. What an awesome answer that is and how deeply that resonates with where Jude is going. He's saying, I need you to fight for the truth. I need you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because the reality is God doesn't bind us to himself with the flimsy thread of subjective experience or pragmatic advice. God binds us to himself with the unbreakable cords of biblical truth. So we need the Bible. We need to understand it deeply. If you're underlining imperative verse, we come to the next one in verse 21. Keep yourselves. It's the next imperative verb. Jesus says, keep yourselves in the love of God. So here's the point. You got it in your notes if you're following along with that. Where there is genuine faith, there is perseverance. There is perseverance where there is genuine faith. So he says, keep yourselves, and then he tells you how. So the main verb, in the original language, this is clearer to see, the main verb is in the imperative, and then there are these clauses, these participles, these ing verbs. They don't always come over as ing verbs in our English translation, but there are ing verbs, and it's the word building, you see it there, praying, and waiting. That's how you're gonna keep yourselves in the love of God, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by waiting for the day, right? Waiting for Christ. So building yourselves up in your most holy faith, just think about that. How do you do that? How do you build yourselves up in your most holy faith? Well, you know, you can't do it without the big three. The big three are, you need God's voice, you need God's ear, and you need God's people. You need God's voice, he talks to us in the Bible. You need God's ear, we talk to him in prayer. You need God's people, we commit to fellowship in the local church. We can't grow without the big three. So those three in consistent and continual rotation in our lives builds us up in our faith in Christ Jesus. It makes Christians strong. It makes Christians stable and secure in the truth. Now Jude focuses particularly, you see in that next phrase, on prayer. So praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, praying in the Holy Spirit? Some, some think that this praying in the Holy Spirit is a reference to speaking in tongues. Because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how I, I, sometimes I pray with my understanding, other times I pray in the Holy Spirit, or I pray in the Spirit. I don't believe that this text here in Jude means that in order to pray in the Holy Spirit that we're talking about speaking in tongues. And, and I don't think it means that because the Apostle Paul, the same one who wrote that text I was just referring to in 1 Corinthians 14, also wrote the text two chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he asked a series of rhetorical questions, the answer to which is no. So he said, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. So not everybody can speak in tongues, but according to Jude, every Christian needs to pray in the Holy Spirit if you're gonna keep yourselves in the love of God. This is a means by which we keep ourselves in the love of God. So it can't just be something for the people who have this or that spiritual gift. It has to be something that's accessible for all of God's people. We can all do this thing. This praying in the Holy Spirit is something every believer can do because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us so that we can have constant contact, constant fellowship, building and deepening our relationship with him, deepening our love for him by communication. Here's the point in your notes for us to take away. Where there is real relationship, 
there is communication. Prayer is communication with God. And where there's real relationship, where you want to grow in a love relationship, you have to talk. You have to communicate. Years ago, I worked a sugarcane harvest with my father-in-law. My father-in-law, Mr. Pete, um, he was a sugarcane farmer his whole life, including in his childhood when he worked out in the fields with the donkeys with his dad in the same sugarcane fields that he would eventually uh, work in his adult life. And when Paula and I first got married and we lived in South Louisiana a couple miles from their house, I worked grinding season, harvest season for sugarcane harvest with Mr. Pete. And so I'm out there in the fields. I'm a work, I'm a um, you know, field laborer. And there was one of the guys who was working with us, he drove a tractor and he was probably deep in his 70s, probably 75 years old. His name was Clive, Mr. Clive. And, and I only heard him say when, when Mr. Pete, my father-in-law, introduced me to Clive, Clive said, hi, it's nice to meet you. And that's the last words I ever understood because everything else was Cajun French. From that moment on, I never heard the man ever speak English. And Clive just sat on that tractor. He had lunch in that tractor. And uh, I found out later on that Clive has a twin brother named Cleve. So Cleve and Clive, these Cajun farmers down in South Louisiana. And here's what I found out, that Clive hadn't talked to Cleve in over 40 years. And I just thought, how sad. I've got an older brother. He's not a twin brother, but he's two years older than me. And I just thought, how do you go 40 years without talking to your brother? Love will get really cold in that kind of silence. And the apostle here is saying to us, I want your love to be hot. I want you to keep yourself in the love of God. Here's what you need to do. You need to talk. You need to communicate. You need to use the access you have through the Holy Spirit to talk and converse with and commune with God. Keep your love for God alive by prayer. So Jude says, you want to persevere, you're going to need an active faith. Second, you want to persevere, you're going to need a deep community. So the final three imperative verbs are in verse 22 and 23. If you're underlining the imperative verbs, go ahead and underline these. Have mercy, and then the imperative save, and then there's another imperative, have mercy. So there's this kind of mercy sandwich going on here, right? And in a way, isn't that what deep spiritual community should look like and feel like? It it should, um, mercy spread on both sides and salvation in the middle. Mercy on both sides and a lot of help in the community in the middle. That's what he's talking about. He's giving us a picture of what genuine church life and fellowship is supposed to feel like. What's what's going on here? Two quick points. Some are influenced by false teaching, so let's be patient. Some are influenced by false teaching, so let's be patient. So these first two imperatives in our text, they focus on people who were clearly influenced by bad theology, they were clearly influenced by imbalanced teaching, and Jude says within that group, there are some who he describes as wavering. It's the same word that's translated in other parts of the Bible for those who are doubting. He's saying, have mercy on those who are doubting. Have mercy on those who are shaky, on shaky ground in their grasp of the truth. Have mercy on those who are wavering. He doesn't say, shame those who doubt. Shame them out of their doubting. You know, they got too many questions, they just need to embrace it. Just, you just take it on faith. No, he says, have mercy on them. Take time, be patient with them, right? This word, have mercy, it has to do with extending assistance. It has to do with helping, with extending aid. He's basically saying, help 
those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Assist those who doubt. Listen, there are people probably in our church family, probably in this room right now who have honest questions about the central claims of the Bible, things that have come easily for you and I perhaps to believe. And, but here's what the church needs to do and has needed to do for 2,000 years. Hold space for those in struggle. Hold space for people on the journey. Have you ever had somebody who trusted you enough to share hard things with you? who would confide in you and say things you're not supposed to say in church, you're not supposed to say in small group, like they would say to you, hey, off the record, can I ask you something? Why does God feel so far from me right now? I'm telling you, he feels like he's a million miles away. Here's another real question, because I read in my Bible this morning, and I'm new to this, but I read in my Bible this morning, and it said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Real question, where was joy this morning? Because here's how it played out for me. Weeping endured for the night, and then there was more weeping in the morning. I need you to help me sort that out, because I'm wrestling. I am struggling, I am wavering. Why, why do I read passages in the Bible that seem to promise the good life and yet I have such a hard life? You know how Jude describes that person? Wavering. And you know what Jude says for the rest of us to do? Help them. Help them, be patient, extend help. He doesn't say lecture them, he says have mercy. There are people in our church who are toppling toward error, toppling toward despair, toppling toward cynicism. And Jude says, don't start a blog. Help them. Snatch them. His word. Snatch them out of the fire through patient gospel friendship. Look, if it weren't in the Bible, we might think that Jude is overstating it because he uses the word, the Greek word sozo. It's the word for salvation. He says, save them. Save them. I wonder how many of you are gonna ever come to a point in your Christian life, maybe you've been there before, where you're gonna wanna turn, you're gonna have to fight against your own pride, but you're gonna wanna turn to the person next to you who you trust as a Christian friend, and you're gonna wanna say, save me. Save me, help me, I am, I am falling. My faith is failing, my faith is weak. I need you to do some saving, I need you to do some snatching. It's the beauty of the church. If that's where you are today, if that's where you are this morning, look, we wanna be the kind of church that's good at snatching. <laughs> that's good at having mercy, right? Where, where people in struggle find friends who are willing to help and who are patient with help. Some are influenced by false teaching, let's be patient, the next point. Some are influencers toward false teaching, let's be discerning. So you see, he uses the same imperative verb that he used earlier, but he adds a clause. He says, have mercy, but with fear. You see that? Have mercy, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So as Jude has already been prone to do in his letter, he's reaching back in deep into Old Testament history. 
And here he's reaching back into the Old Testament where there's this idea throughout, pervasive in the Old Testament, there's this idea that the morally unclean are contagious, that the ritually unclean are contagious. And if this person's ritually unclean and I touch them and then you touch me, all three of us need a bath. All three of us need ritual cleansing. All three of us are unclean and unfit and unprepared to meet with God. You touch them, you become, you catch their uncleanness. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, the God-man, and he reverses the script because he hears the lepers saying what the lepers are supposed to do. Every time somebody comes within a stone's throw, they say, unclean, you know the drill, you walk that way, we walk this way, unclean, and Jesus keeps moving closer and closer, and he touches the unclean, but instead of him coming away unclean like they are, they leave whole. They catch his cleansing, he doesn't catch their uncleanness, right? And, and it's a picture of the ministry of the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ in the world, that we have a message that makes people whole. We have a message that makes unclean people clean. We touch them with the message of the gospel and they come out clean. But Jude's point is some don't want to be clean. They want to stay defiled and not only do they want to stay defiled, they want company. They want you joining them in their defilement. So that's why Jude says, have mercy, but with fear. Have mercy, but with fear. In other words, have mercy with discernment. How long have teenagers, Christian teenagers, wrestled with this question? I remember it as a teenager myself, of um, who should my closest friend group be? Should this be my closest friend group? Because look, I, I want to be a light and I don't want to live in a Christian bubble. The question of whether that should be your best group of friends is, has everything to do with what's happening in that exchange, right? If, if that's your best friend group, then we need to ask another question. And the question is, are they catching your light or are you sharing in their darkness? You know, everybody wants to... to to do missional living, but if missional living means that we dive into relationships where we look more and more like the world, well, we can't call that missional living much longer, can we? Because the road of influence is going in the wrong direction, and that's what Jude is saying. He's saying, be devoted to Christ above all. Maintain your purity before him, your steadfast devotion to him above all. Be discerning. You want to make it to the end, you need an active faith, you need a deep community, and you need, number three, a Godward confidence. You need a Godward confidence. As a teenager, I had some uh, significant theological confusion. I knew the one thing that one needs to know in order to be saved. I knew Jesus Christ died for my sins. And that was a very personal truth that was brought home to my heart by the Holy Spirit, by his grace. And I grasped that with both hands. Everything else was confusing. Literally everything else was confusing. It was J.I. Packer who said years ago, he said, God is so often content to bring people to himself who have a needle of truth in a haystack of error. And I had that needle of truth, but I, was, I had a haystack of error and theological confusion. So I knew God is holy, that much I knew. 
That was right. I knew God judges sin and he doesn't play around with our sin and the church is called to repentance. I knew that, I, I understood that, but I thought perfect obedience to God was possible. And I worked so hard to get to that place. And, and what made it even more keenly felt is there were Christians around me who gave me the impression that if you just do this thing that we over here are doing, if you, if you learn how to surrender the way we've learned how to surrender, I'm like, where is this place? Where is this place of surrender? Where I can just kind of get there and then just fall back and everything comes naturally and easily as it does for you guys. How come I can't hit that stride the way you have found a way to hit it? Because I'm not there. I remember being in the back of a, of a Jeep in 1995. I was in college and it was 1995 because this week I looked up and found out that the, the project, DC Talk, Jesus Freak, came out in 1995. And this was the first time I'd ever heard that CD. And he popped it in and we're in the back of, I'm in the back of a Suzuki Samurai. And we've got that thing cranked up all the way. And he comes to track four. First time I ever heard this song. And he comes to the chorus of the song of track four. And this words, these words arrested my attention. These words, what if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and I make fools of us all? Will the love continue when my walk becomes a crawl? What if I stumble? And what if I fall? And I thought, he's in my head. Like that, that's my thoughts set to music. Someone's read my journal. And I'm reading through the Bible that year. For the first time in my whole life, I was starting to read through the Bible. And I come all the way here to the end of the Bible, the book of Jude, right before Revelation. And after all this fire and darkness and people dropping like flies in the wilderness and not making it to the finish line, and then Jude says these two words, but you, not you, and it was as though the Lord was saying to me, applying that text and saying, Matt, you're not going to die in the wilderness. You're going to persevere to the end. You're not going down in flames. You're going to persevere. You may and you will stumble, but you will not stumble finally. You will not fall ultimately. And because he lifted my text, my eyes to see in this text, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you on that day faultless in the presence of his glory and majesty, blameless and with great joy. And my heart sang in the book of Jude. Here's the truth of it. Our final salvation is not a tribute to our persevering efforts, but God's preserving grace. I had a blue notebook, spiral-bound notebook, and as I was reading through the Bible, I would take my pen out, and I would write all the verses I wanted to memorize. By the time I got to Jude, I had this notebook that was just full of all this writing, all these verses I wanted to commit to memory, and so I'm flipping back to find the first available blank page, and I wrote down Jude 24. You're gonna come to the end of your life, Christian, and you're gonna wanna know How'd I do? You're gonna want the assessment, the only evaluation that ultimately matters. God, Father, how'd I do? 
And the question is, what's the Father going to say over your life? And why is he going to say it? The renowned New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, is paying tribute to his own father, Tom Carson, at a funeral in 1992. And he remarked about his dad's legacy, and, and he talked about his godly life, and he talked about his contentment with little, and he talked about his love for the lost, his passion for witness, and his tireless energy that he spent pastoring his small congregation. And here's what D.A. Carson wrote about his dad. When dad died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no notice in the papers, no announcement on the television, no mention in parliament, no notice in the nation. In his hospital room, there was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because dad had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad wanted admittance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man, but because he was a forgiven man. All the trumpets sounded. And, and Jude reaches for similar fanfare as he describes Jesus Christ presenting you, Christian, before the majesty of God the Father on high. And there you are, blameless. <laughs> With great joy, this eruption of joy in heaven. Here at the end of this letter, with all these haunting images of those who died in unbelief, Jude says, not you. I'm not talking about you. You're gonna make it to the end because you've been marked out. You've been marked out by the mercy of God. You'll be kept to the last day. You'll stand blameless on that day and heaven's gonna go nuts over the life that you lived in faithfulness to Christ. Look, we're not gonna stand. On that day, we're not gonna stand on these, these banged up, bent up legs of what felt like a feeble faith. We're gonna stand, you and me, on the unblemished record of Jesus Christ himself. And in the strange economy of what Christians can only call grace, God the Father will look at the perfect work of God the Son and then will say to Christians who stumbled across the finish line, well done, you crushed it. You did great, you were a good and faithful servant. That's my evaluation, well done. What's the key to tenacity? and Christian faith and Christian conviction and active faith, laying hold of God's word, a deep community where we help each other persevere all the way to the end, and a Godward confidence where we look to the only one who can pull it off, where we look to the only one who is able to keep us to the end. Friends, that's the ball game. <laughs> that's how you're gonna finish, and you're not just gonna finish. You're gonna finish well. You're gonna finish strong. That's what Jude's saying when he says, not you. This is your end. This is the narrative lines of your story are gonna end with you standing blameless before the holy God. 